morning. Our passage for today is found in Genesis 21, and we'll be reading verses 8 to 3. Uh, the Word of God will be behind me on the screen, and so you could please follow along with me. Let's read, let's read together. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing... So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and this make you a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because of your offspring. Please remain standing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. This is your word that is living and active and we stand on this word. We stand on these promises that will prevail and that you will hold us fast because your promises will last. So Lord, we pray that today as your word is proclaimed, that your promises are made known to us here through your word. Pray that you'll open hearts and open minds to be encouraged, to be challenged, and Lord, to be opened up to Jesus Christ, our older brother, through whom we are saved by faith. And so by faith, help us to receive your word here today, this morning, in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. really good uh, to see all of you here today. If, um, if you don't know, my name is Josh, and uh, I want to just say, uh, for those who are regularly here with us, it's great to see you, but for those who have recently started to join us, uh, it's good to see you, and as well as our visitors here this morning. I know many of you are celebrating your loved ones here today. Um, with the rest of the students at Nippon Bible College, especially the graduating class of 2023. And many of you as proud parents celebrating your children's achievements. I always loved Grad Sunday when my parents came out. They came out every year when I was a student, which is great. But what I love the most about Grad Sunday every year is the true reason why we come together and celebrate. Right? And I think many of you parents would agree here this morning that it's less about your children's achievements, right? And more so about God's faithfulness. Yet faithfulness through the lives of your children and through their growth in Christ over the past year or number of years at NBC. Can I get an amen for that? Just wanted to welcome our Pentecostal brothers and sisters here this morning. But much celebration and laughter usually surround such an occasion, and much tears are also shed at the end of these ceremonies that we'll see 
this afternoon. In more ways than one, this is what our passage in Genesis 21 is all about. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we've been waiting for months to get to this chapter, chapter 21, where Isaac is born. Um, And so now in verses 8 to 21, we hear about the two sons of Abraham, one who was chosen by promise and one who was cast out of the promise. So if you follow on with your outlines, I hope you received one. Uh, It will really help you track along. But our first big idea that we will see here in this passage in Genesis 21 is that God protects Isaac. And the first observation here is that Isaac grows. Look at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. When I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of a recent example when our own little Luca stopped breastfeeding and I remember putting my fists in the air and said, yes, my boy is becoming a man. (laughs) But I don't remember putting on a party and inviting everyone. And you might be asking, you know, why, why didn't we hear this? Feast when Isaac was born. I mean, there were certainly hints of celebration, right? If you kind of peek through verses 1 to 7, you'll hear hints about celebration through the joyful laughter. I mean, that's what Isaac means, right? He laughs. When Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham, manifested in his name and the meaning of it, why put on a great feast at his weaning? And judging by the word great here, and the last time Abraham put on a quick feast in Genesis 18, this was likely an extravagant party, right? But the best answer to this that many people agree on, as I found this week, is that children were usually breastfed up to two or three years of age back then due to the high rate of infancy death at that time. And you'll get an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 1 when Hannah waits to present Samuel to the temple until he was weaned. And that's the age of Isaac at this point. But with that in mind, it makes total sense that Isaac's growth from infancy to childhood is a cause for celebration. And it's also a testament of God's protection over Abraham's offspring. In keeping with his promise about Isaac and his offspring after him, we see that in Genesis 17, 19. But in any great party, there must be a great party pooper, right? And amidst this great feast, in celebrating how Isaac has grown, our second observation here, as you'll see, is Isaac is persecuted. Verse 9. But Sarah, the son, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. First thing to notice here is that first word. That right there, to start off this verse, is evidence enough that there's something going on here. But, Sarah. Yet the question remains, is there anything wrong with what's happening here? Like, really, what's wrong with the son of Hagar laughing here? Don't feasts involve laughter? After all, Sarah's joyful laughter in verses 1 to 7 there was supposed to be contagious. Verse 6, if you look at it, everyone who hears, she says, will laugh over me. Everyone who uh, celebrates here will will share in this God-given laughter. So what's wrong with it? 
Well, let's attempt to answer this. The word laughing here is the same Hebrew word used in verse 6 there when Sarah said, everyone will share in this laughter. Yet, it's also the same exact word. If you flip back to chapter 19, verse 14, the word jesting there, when, when Lot warns his sons about the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and his sons-in-law thought he was jesting or mocking, playing. Some translations would say mocking as well. But the clearest interpretation of the word usage here comes from the apostles, uh, Apostle Paul uh, and his explanation in uh, Galatians 4.29. I'll read it for you here. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Hagar's son, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Sarah's son, Isaac. And that's how Paul explains and understood it. And with all this, it's clear in Genesis 21 here, the son of Hagar, who was born according to the flesh, is laughing in mockery of Isaac. Because his baby brother is the miracle baby and the child of promise that's been long awaited. And it's not a stretch to say that Ishmael did this out of jealousy for Isaac, of Isaac. He would have been around uh, 16 years old at this point, Abraham's age when Ishmael was born up to Isaac's birth here, gives us those clues. So Ishmael would have been old enough to understand that this is what's happening. Isaac is a promised child. Talk about sibling tension, right? I mean, I'm sure my oldest sister is probably jealous about how cute I was when I was a baby. No. Um, But this is the tension going on here. And pay attention to the narrator's detail in verse 9 to emphasize this specific tension. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she, Hagar, had born to Abraham, laughing. All the while, the happy family of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac is celebrated, Sarah notices that the son of her slave, Hagar, the Egyptian, who was born to her husband, was making fun of her son. This is why I headlined this second observation, is Isaac is persecuted, because it helps us capture what's really going on here. Helps us understand the tension, and it helps us understand Sarah's next steps and her next actions in verse 10. From joyful laughter and celebration to jesting laughter and persecution, our third observation here is that Sarah defends her son. Look at verse 10. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And talk about going overboard. You know, is this just Sarah's mama bear instinct coming out? But if you think about it, some older kid at her son's party laughs around her son, and so she gets defensive about it to the point of telling her husband, get rid of that slave woman and her kid. After all, Sarah does have a track record back in chapter 16 as well when she deals harshly with Hagar to the point of driving her out. It's chapter 16, verse 6. Except this time she asks Abraham to do it for her. Again, one important detail that we need to notice here is the continued hints of tension by the author, which is very intentional. Notice Sarah's choice of words here when she refers to Hagar and Ishmael. Up to this point, every character is properly named. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar even, and Isaac. 
Yet Sarah refers to Hagar as a slave woman and Ishmael as her son. So whether Sarah's defensiveness here is warranted or not, we're going to find out. But what we have found out is that this implicit language in play here in reference to the slave and her son is both intentional and important to the plot. And this is further evidenced by a fourth observation here when Abraham defends his son. Look at verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. There's that language there. So notice the emphasis in that language. Sarah defends her son, Isaac, in her request to Abraham. And Abraham finds it to be very displeasing because it was on account of his son, Ishmael. His son with Hagar, the Egyptian, as opposed to his son with Sarah. Okay, side note here. In the past, we've talked about past uh, chapters in Genesis. We've talked about how the laws against polygamy, that is multiple marriages, have not yet been given by God at this point in redemptive history. But I hope we can see the destructive consequences from this, right? Or the, the, the consequences that come from this. And it emphasizes the beauty of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I'm not worried that many of us in this room are tempted towards polygamy, though if that's the case, there's prayer for you after the service. No. Um, but I make this side comment uh, as an encouragement for those of us who are married, including myself, who can be tempted to be straying away from being a one-woman man or a one-man woman. But more importantly, we see here the destructive consequence of Abraham taking matters into his own hands, right? Because he has a child with Hagar. Instead of waiting on God, Abraham takes that matter into his own hands. And yes, this was Sarah's idea. Some of you are thinking that. But ultimately, it is Abraham's failure because the responsibility was on him as the man in that marriage, just like God held Adam responsible in the garden instead of Eve when they sinned, Genesis 3, 9. But to Abraham's defense here, he doesn't passively give in to Sarah's request this time regarding Hagar like he did in chapter 16. He actually wrestles with the situation because he's displeased. You can only imagine the conversation that happens there. Yet we'll see in our fifth observation that God steps in to help solve this dilemma in a somewhat surprising way when God affirms Sarah. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Now, I find it quite ironic that God tells Abraham to do what Sarah says here. When Abraham finally challenges what she says, right, and mans up. Yet, we can't miss that Sarah's request is actually in line with God's word. When she says that the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Why is that? Well, in chapter 17, verse 19, God tells Abraham that the promise of the everlasting covenant was for Isaac and for his offspring after him. And here in chapter 21, verse 12, Sarah's request affirms God's word, so God from Sarah's request in keeping with his word. Right? That's why he says at the end there, through Isaac, 
for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What's more interesting here, though, is the language that God employs. Look at how he echoes Sarah's unnamed references to Hagar and Ishmael. God says, the boy and the slave woman. In fact, not once in our passage here this morning, you will see Ishmael's name. And it's a clear indicator that only through Isaac shall Abraham's offspring be named. Isaac is indeed the chosen child of promise, not Ishmael, the one who must not be named, literally. But in affirming Sarah's actions, both in her request and her reference to those outside the promise, God acts in keeping with his promise. And this whole section on Isaac, as we've seen already, shows that God protects Isaac in order to keep his promise to Abraham. Yet God made other promises to Abraham regarding his son of the flesh. So here's a second big idea in this passage is that God protects the slave woman and her son. And the first observation we make under that is that God assures Abraham. Look at verse 13 with me. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. When Abraham was first told by God about Isaac's coming birth in chapter 17, Abraham cries out of concern for the well-being of his firstborn son. He says, oh God, that Ishmael might live before you. And here God assures Abraham, as he did, back then, that the son of the slave woman will indeed be blessed in keeping with his promise. This is chapter 17, verse 20, I'm quoting here. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. God is acting in keeping with his promises. And what's beautiful about this assurance to Abraham is that God is keeping his word through products of Abraham's lack of faith in God's word. The son of the slave woman was a product of Abraham's lack of faith in God as he took matters into his own hands by having a child with Hagar, who, in fact, Hagar the Egyptian was also a product of Abraham's lack of faith in chapter 12 when he took a detour down to Egypt instead of settling in the land God told it to dwell him in because a famine hit. Yet God uses these faithless acts of Abraham for his good purposes and for the good of Abraham in keeping with his promise. I mean, we see this in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Abraham was called by God, and God acts according to his purposes in keeping with his promise that nations and royalty will come from Abraham, as he promised in Genesis 17, 6, even though Abraham is at an up-and-down journey of faith. Yet this time, however, we see that Abraham does exercise faith in God's word and trusts God with his son, Ishmael. And our second observation here, when Abraham obeys, look at the start of verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. 
Now, I, I hate to cast doubt on our praise of Abraham here just now, but we see both sides of the equation here, right? On one end, he rises early in the morning and obeys God rather quickly. On another, notice that he gave them a bread and a skin of water. Hardly enough for a trek through the desert. Many people would agree. Now, did Abraham do this because he trusts God to provide for Hagar and Ishmael once they run out of bread and water in the wilderness? Or was he trying to keep his son from being too far from him? As some people have questioned as I looked into this. Either way, it's not surprising to see evidence of faith and evidence possibly of the lack of faith when you look at Abraham's up and down journey of faith. But nonetheless, the important part here is that Abraham does obey. He does send them away. And the banishment of the slave woman and her son was in keeping with God's promises, separating the two sons of Abraham in order to remove any threat to his promises being kept. And at this point, after Abraham sends them away, it makes total sense to end this section right here and continue tracking through Isaac's story as the chosen child of promise. But that is not the case. This was not the end of the slave woman and her son's story because they're still in the scope of God's purposes in keeping with his promise to Abraham. So we shouldn't be surprised to, per se, see the camera pan towards Hagar and her son in our third observation as they wandered in the wilderness. Look at verse, uh, second part of verse 14 there. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, verse 15, she put the child under one of the bushes. Well, the obvious emphasis here is the shortage of water. The bigger emphasis here is the shortage of life itself. The, the slave woman and her son departed from their source of survival, Abraham's household, and they wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, which if you look later in uh, chapter 21, it's actually named after a well of water. Yet here there were no wells to be found. It's hard to come by. And here the bigger emphasis is that life was nowhere to be found for Hagar and Ishmael, the slave woman and her son. No signs of survival ahead as they wandered. This is meant to make us sympathize with the characters here. And it prepares us for the fourth observation when we hear about Hagar's cry. Look at verse 16. Then she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And the language here about the distance of a bowshot um, opposite her son obviously signifies that it's a long way off. But this language also foreshadows what Hagar expects to happen next, the death of her son. Now, could you imagine if that was the case for you and while we might be surprised about what she does next because she leaves her son on his own any mother any parent would put their child in the best position of survival and in this case it was under the safety of a small shade in the middle of a dry scorching desert and the closest thing to water at this point were Hagar's tears 
However, we also might be surprised to see in our next observation that instead of Hagar, God heard the voice of the boy. Verse 17 and 18. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Here we find out that the boy cried as well. Ishmael's name means God hears. So there's no shortage of intention here when you connect the dots. God heard the voice of the boy because Ishmael, God hears. But what I find a tad funny about this section is a question for Hagar. What, what troubles you, Hagar? I mean, duh. But this could be a question based on her last interaction with the angel of the Lord in the desert. Again, this is in chapter 16, verses 7 to 13. But I wonder if this is a question of faith. What troubles you, Hagar? Haven't you seen this already? Either way, this, this is likely more of a statement than a question because Hagar should know that God hears and Hagar should know that God sees. After all, that's what she named God right after God named Ishmael, chapter 16, verse 11 and 13. Now, I want to bring attention to the fact that Hagar cries to and communicates with God. Whether it was to God or not, Ishmael also cried out. And in both situations, God saw and God heard. It seems an awful lot like Hagar, maybe Ishmael, demonstrates faith in God. So why are they cast out of the promise? Later on, the Apostle Paul echoes this slave and her son language in Genesis 21 from Genesis 21, sorry, when he differentiates Hagar and Ishmael from Sarah and Isaac in Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. So uh, it's clear to Paul that they're not included in the promises of God. And the New Testament author's interpretation of the Old Testament has much authority over how we interpret the Old Testament in Scripture today. But... What's really at play here is Paul's explanation of God's choice in Romans 9 and the distinction between the children of Abraham, which we've talked about before if you've been with us. But here's, here's an excerpt on uh, chapter 9 of Romans. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But, here he quotes Genesis 21. Verse 12. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Paul continues, he says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, as children of God. And while Hagar, maybe Ishmael, seemed to have faith in God here in Genesis 21, she and her son were ultimately cast out of the promise because they ultimately didn't believe in the promise as evidenced by these scriptures, evidenced by the child of flesh, Ishmael, making fun of and persecuting the promised child, therefore not believing in the promise, hinted at the angel's question for Hagar. Either way, physical children of Abraham can know God and experience God's blessings, yet only in a physical way. 
but with Hagar reminded by the God who sees and the God who looks after her, as she describes in chapter 16, it is fitting that her sixth observation is that God opened her eyes. Look at verse 19. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. In the wilderness of Beersheba, which was named after a well of water, there were no wells of water to be found at the time. And the God who looks after Hagar, the God who sees, brought her to a well in order to keep her and her son alive. As we've seen already, the God who looks after Hagar is the same God who looks after her son. We hear this loud and clear in our final observation in this passage. God was with the boy, verse 20 to 21. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Don't miss the contrast here with Isaac in previous verses. The boy grew up, just like Isaac did. The boy lives, just like Isaac did, but the boy lives in the wilderness. The boy survives, like Isaac did, but he has to survive with his bow, likely for hunting or for defense in the wilderness. The boy marries, which eventually Isaac will do, but he marries outside the covenant community of God. God was with the boy, but he was far away from God's promise. As commentator Matthew Henry says, many are full of the blessings of God's care and providence, yet are strangers to the blessings of God's covenant and people. And this is where our passage ends today. Throughout Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21, we see God protecting Isaac in keeping with his promise. And at the same time, God protects a slave and her son in keeping with his promise. Yet Ishmael's removal from the line of promise is also in keeping with God's promise, which paves the way for the promise to be fulfilled through Isaac. But the question for us today is, what do these mean for us? What do these promises mean for us today? Well, just like what we were doing already, we look through the New Testament and the rest of Scripture, and we will see that these promises are for us today because we know that the promise to Abraham wasn't ultimately fulfilled through Isaac. Instead, it's fulfilled through the promised offspring that came from Isaac's line. Galatians 3.16 says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, But it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. As we always want to emphasize, Jesus is the main character of Genesis 21 here, not Isaac, not anyone else. The long-awaited offspring through Sarah has come, but they had to wait even longer until that promised offspring came at the right time in redemptive history. We heard from this morning our call to worship Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, 
And Luke chapter 2 comes to mind here, right? And Luke chapter 2 talks about how the boy Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, presented to the Lord in the temple, according to the law. It says this in verses 39 to 40, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they, Joseph and Mary, they uh, returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Eventually, Jesus fulfills the law, dies on a cross, and is raised to life to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as Galatians 4 talks about, so that we might be brought into the family of God. That's why we're doing church camp in June. This is why Paul, after his spiritual lesson in Galatians 4, which feel free to turn there because that's going to be the emphasis uh, uh, in the end here. But his spiritual lesson in Galatians 4 based on Genesis 21 with Sarah and Hagar, Paul says that we, like Isaac, verse 28 of Galatians 4, we, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Even at the end of chapter 3, he says, verse 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I hope that most, if not all of us in this room, can confidently say amen to these passages, that we are children of promise, like Isaac, brothers and sisters in Christ as Abraham's offspring. But if not... Maybe you haven't received Christ. Maybe you're struggling with your faith in Christ here today. I hope you pay attention to Genesis 21 and the different paths that Isaac and Ishmael take. Don't be like Ishmael who, as a child of the flesh, made fun of the child of promise because ultimately he didn't believe the promise. Learn from his mistake that led him to being cast out of the household of promise, to wander in the wilderness, survive with his weapons and wells of water. Because you, like Ishmael, right now might be surviving with your own hands instead of trusting in God's promises. Maybe because you're young and you can do anything, or you feel you can do anything. Maybe you have the security of your paycheck and your bank account. One day, those hands will give in. That well of water will run out. The only water that can quench your thirst and help you survive is the living water that Jesus offers to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 so that she might never thirst again. This is what Ishmael rejected as he persecuted and made fun of the promise. So instead of Ishmael, consider Isaac here, this morning, All the more consider the God of Isaac who made promises through Isaac, the God who will remove any threat that could get in the way of those promises being kept like he did with Ishmael. And it came true. It did come true, right? The promise to Abraham through Isaac did come in the person of Jesus Christ, the one offspring of Abraham who offers that well of living water. That leads to eternal life here this morning. So I encourage you, don't be blinded by what you see and enjoy now in this life because everything has an end date. We have an end date. You go down to the grave. So the exhortation here is to walk by faith, not by sight. 
Because what you really need is someone to bring you out of the grave. That's why we celebrated Easter last weekend. Jesus died for you and I and was raised for you and I so that we might receive the promise of eternal life. So I implore you today, believe in the promise of God. Cast out your unbelief. Maybe your mere intellectual assent of God and the scriptures, but believe in Jesus Christ by faith to be welcomed into the family of God as children of promise like Isaac. But if you're here today and you do believe in the promises of God as children of the promise, brothers and sisters, let's be encouraged that the God who protected Isaac will keep us safe till the end when we receive our promised inheritance in Christ. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1, verse 11 to 14, in him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As we continue to trust the promises of God in Genesis 21 and all over the scriptures, he will remove any hindrances that get in the way for us to receive this imperishable inheritance, as Peter says. Because he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that cries, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. And that spirit is the guarantee of our promised inheritance in Christ. And Paul gives us assurance here, right? In Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. No, for I am sure that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this. Hey, assurance language that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let's continue to sing the songs we've been singing. Standing on the promises of Christ, by the living word of God, I shall prevail. He will hold me fast until he comes at last. These songs, these promises, these words need to be our life anthem so we can indeed stand firm on God's promises until that day. Because brothers and sisters, we will be like Isaac, persecuted. That's your last point of application here today. Galatians 4.29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Even before Paul, Jesus promises people that they will receive persecution. But do you remember the second part of those promises in Matthew 5? Listen to this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
I mean, it's Grad Sunday, so allow me a couple words for the grads. I'm looking forward to celebrating with you later this afternoon. I hope to do so with many others in this room. But your three to four years of faithful perseverance in the scriptures, all of those late nights writing papers, I'm sure, uh, as you are equipped to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a heart to serve. I'm looking forward to celebrating that. But know that the minute you take off that cap and gown today, when you go your separate ways, you are children of promise like Isaac who will be persecuted by children of the flesh like Ishmael. Whether you go back to your different workplaces, the spring or summer or beyond, whether you go to your different churches and communities, maybe even when you go back home, you will be persecuted like Isaac. But in those moments, when you're tempted to flame out, because you're mocked and rejected by the world. Remember what God did for Isaac in Genesis 21. Remember that he will remove any threat from his promises being kept. Remember that the promises of the firstborn, your older brother, Jesus Christ, in Matthew 5 are for you. Rejoice and be glad for reward. Your reward is great in heaven. I hope this is an encouragement for all of us whether you're a student, whether you're working, whether you're retired, we who are brothers and sisters as children of the promise, like Isaac, are adopted as sons of God in Christ who will be kept until the end, even through the persecution. Yet, amidst the persecution, don't forget God's heart at the end of Genesis 21. Don't forget how he protected the slave woman and her son. In the wilderness. Don't forget the end of Matthew chapter 5. After Jesus promises persecution and the rewards in heaven, he later on commands his people to have the same heart as him for your persecutors. He says this Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There it is. Why? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God does this for people who hate him and reject him. God did this for Hagar and Ishmael. While they were outside the scope of God's promises, they were still in the scope of God's purposes. This includes unbelievers. This includes those who acknowledge God by mere intellectual assent, yet nothing more. We need to pray for those people. We need to pray for our persecutors in order that their eyes might be open to the well, not just physical water that preserves physical life, but the well of living water that wells up eternal life. So I hope, brothers and sisters, that we can do this by the strength of the God of Abraham and Isaac. Let's pray to give us, for him to give us strength to do this by faith as children of the promise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you had chosen us, you have predestined us to sonship through Jesus Christ as your children. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he is our firstborn and that he offers this living water that wells up eternal life. Help us to remember your word here from Genesis 21. Help us to remember that you will protect your children as you have promised. You'll keep your children to the end as you have promised. 
Even through the persecution, the coming hope of glorification awaits the children of promise, just like our firstborn Jesus Christ. So God, help us to pray for those persecutors, to pray that more people, as we have prayed already earlier, that the nations would come to the well of water, living water that wells up eternal life. So Lord, help us to stand amidst the persecution as children of the promise. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight this morning onwards in our lives. In your name, amen. Music team.